sorry, I, I, I realise that I'm not recording this lecture, and so just for the sake of the recording, uh, this is what the lecture is about today. And it's concerning the nature of the representation in ritual, an, anti, an argument against the representationalist idea, and then I want to talk about sacrifice in terms of the concept of virtuality, and then I want to discuss some theories of sacrifice, theories that I think have problems uh, because they reduce sacrifice to a concept of human nature and, uh, and produce a psychologistic explanation for the nature of sacrifice. And finally, I will be addressing the question of the reading, which is the reading, the red and the black. Okay, but we start with Disneyland. Now, as many of you know, I, I, I imagine, and indeed some of you are, perhaps have been to Disneyland, um, it's kind of like the archetypal theme park. Um, amusement park, American amusement park. There were, of course, American amusement parks well before um, Disneyland. You can own, you, you can take, for example, uh, Luna Park in um, in Melbourne or uh, in Sydney, um, and you can think about Coney Island in the US. So these parks have been around, but what's unusual? is this character, this filmmaker, animated filmmaker by the name of Walt Disney. Now, Walt Disney made his uh, great fortunes uh, pioneering um, animated feature-length films. So films that had, you know, went for 90 minutes and they were entirely animated. Uh, and they told a story in a cartoon. And this was remarkable for its time because people didn't make cartoons that were that long. And Walt Disney made his fortune uh, with, with films like um, Sleeping Beauty, the, 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 the story of Sleeping Beauty um, and the story of Bambi. Uh, and so these were partly folk tales, European folk tales, um, heavily, heavily censored um, and, uh, and rendered very, very safe uh, compared to what they'd been when they were collected by the Brothers Grimm. Um, um, and, uh, sorry, and um, um, he then said about, in the 1950s, realizing this dream to create a big park that would basically be a, a physical representation of the world of his films. And so it would be a further way by which you didn't simply go to the movies. You actually went to this place and you played, but you played around the themes of the sorts of things that he was looking at. In the very middle of this place that opened in 1955, the absolute heart of it was a thing called Main Street USA. And that picture there on the left is a picture of Main Street USA. It was or was meant to be the absolutely typical American small town street. And that it, this was an, an idea of American society, but an idea of American society that was already in 1955 an object of nostalgia. This was the, this was the place of the parents and grandparents of the children who were taken to Disneyland just outside Los Angeles. Within the place itself, Disneyland, there were separate worlds, as he called them, known as Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. And they each featured structures and rides and various 
other objects and artifacts for children to play. And they've late, more lately added things like Critter Country, New Orleans Square and Mickey's Toontown. But they were the main ideas and the whole notion that this was a world of uh, the imagination but and, and, and with that a world of fantasy um, but it was also uh, a world that represented uh, the imagination, the, the contemporary American imagination. And so when you entered into Disneyland, um, you didn't walk under a sign that said, work shall set you free. You walked under a sign that said, here you leave today and enter the world of yesterday, tomorrow and fantasy. Now, if some of you think that sounds eerily familiar to a Deakin University marketing slogan about how Deakin University will um, future-proof you um, or um, set you somehow into the world of the future, you wouldn't be wrong. Uh, it's, it, it, these are extraordinary time reference uh, that we have in the world, reference that play with time. But the interesting thing, and this is why I have this quotation here before I move on, uh, the thing about the world of Disneyland was that what Walt Disney created was not a representation of real life. He created something that was better than real life. It was perfect. This Main Street USA didn't have a bank that was getting robbed. It didn't have a fight going on in the streets. It didn't have an episode where a husband uh, physically assaulted his wife or a mother physically assaulted their child um, or a dog physically assaulted somebody else. This was a place that was happy and that it was perfect. This was the place of the imagination. Now, as I say, you know, the kind of notion of this Disney kind of fantasy world uh, is also evident in, um, in, in advertising uh, jingles and slogans that one finds uh, in Australian society today. And hence, uh, you can go to the Slater and Gordon uh, legal firm and they will tell you that tomorrow starts today. Or you can go to Deakin University and they will tell you that the future belongs to the ready. Whatever that is. Or you can look at a film from the 1970s about the rise of Nazism uh, in Germany um, called Cabaret. And there's a marvellous song called Tomorrow Belongs to Me about the rise of fascist totalitarianism. And you can then recognise from that that fascism and totalitarianism totalitarianism never really went away. They just transmuted into different directions, new little homes to live in the imaginations of the little and the great dictators of our world. Now, the thing that I'm talking about, the reason why I'm talking about this is it raises a really interesting question about the nature of ritual and representation. And it raises the question of whether when you're going into a place like Disneyland or Luna Park for that matter, or if you like, you could be going to Sovereign Hill in Ballarat if you wanted to think about another theme park that's along these lines, heavy with nostalgia and sense of memory, that you're looking into a, a certain sorts of ritual spaces, that these are sort of fantastical ritual spaces where you've created a certain idealised vision of reality. And that raises the question whether this is in fact a feature of all kinds of ritual. 
But does ritual create a reality or does it represent a reality? Does Disneyland create a reality or represent a reality of Main Street USA? Is that representation uh, a kind of mirror to the world or is it some kind of idealised version therein? Now, the question of whether something is real or a representation, the actual thing or a symbol of it, has been a problem in the history of Christianity for several um, hundred years. And it, and it relates to the question and the problem of what's called the Eucharist. Now, the Eucharist in Christianity is the principal ritual object of Christianity, and it is associated with a ritual event, which is at the heart of the mass ceremony in many, many of the Christian churches, where people are understood to be remembering and reenacting a mythical event in the Christian Bible known as the Last Supper. This is the last meal that the God, Jesus Christ, had with his followers on um, the night before his arrest uh, and subsequent torture and execution. In that event, which was at the same time as a major Jewish ritual event known as the Passover, um, where indeed a sacrificial animal, a sheep, was prepared and consumed. But in the case of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus Christ used the meal consisting of bread and wine and used those two objects to describe himself as the sacrificial victim and that the, these two objects then were to be his body and his blood. And the question is, well, yes, were they actually his body and his blood or were they representations of his body and his blood? So is it the bread is the body and the wine is the blood or is it that the, the bread and the wine are representations of the body and the blood? And this raises a very important point about the nature of symbols and the nature of ritual symbolism. So that when you are looking at rituals, you are looking at intensely symbolic worlds. Now, the question that we're raising is, are those symbolic worlds symbols of something or symbols of nothing at all. Now, keep this in mind because it's, this has a bearing on the red and the black. You know, are the red and the black in the ritual known as the red and the black, are they symbols? Are they symbols of anything in particular or are they symbols of nothing at all? And that's a very interesting question. Now, we can recognise then that in a lot of ritual and in a lot of theological debates, like in the history of Christianity, the question of whether the thing is the thing or it's merely a representation of the thing is an issue that's been there for quite some time. In the same way, when we talk about a temple, uh, and we say that the temple is a symbol of the cosmos, that it represents the universe, so that it's a representation of the universe in the same way that Main Street USA in Disneyland is a representation of small town America. Or is it something else? And very importantly, what if it is neither um, not a representation, nor a representation. So when we think about a temple, 
We might be thinking about a Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple or so on. And somebody says the temple is a symbol of the cosmos. And we look at it and say, really? It doesn't look like the cosmos to me. We might be saying, well, no, it doesn't really represent the cosmos. Well, no, but it is. It, it is a representation of the cosmos. But in a highly symbolic form, so that you can't actually look at it closely and say, oh, I can see my house from here. There it is in the cosmos. No, your house isn't there. And so therefore, is it therefore an unreal representation or is it an idealized representation? The point about a temple is that a temple doesn't represent the world. It symbolizes the world. But in its symbolizing the world, that symbol is not like a photograph of the world. It's an artistic representation of the world. Now we can think about artistic representations of the world and we can recognize that they are indeed many and varied. Consider for example uh, Australian First Nations artworks. In Australian First Nations artworks you have artistic representations of dreamings but those artistic representations of dreamings are not photographs of a dreaming, they're artistic representations and they have their power in being artistic representations. And so the question of how the representation represents is then contingent very much upon both the artist and, and the audience. Those things in relation to that painting. Now, I've just seen that my recording, I'm just, I just need someone to get quickly on the microphone and tell me, can you still see the PowerPoints? No, yes. um, oh yes, yes, you can, sorry. Yeah, you can. Oh, thank you, I can't. Um, I'm told I'm reconnecting, um, but I don't know if my reconnecting is letting me see my PowerPoints. Um, and um, so what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to, if I stop, it stops the recording. This is a pain. Um, I'm going to have to find the PowerPoints from my screen and just work from my PowerPoints. Sorry, uh, everyone, please bear with me. Uh, this Blackboard Collaborate is proving to be a, a bit of a dud um, this year, I've noticed. Um, Right, now, okay, so when we think about an artistic representation of, uh, an artistic representation of the, um, um, of the world as a symbolic representation of that world, we can recognize that the, uh, that the representation can have its own power, can have its own sacredness, if I can put it in those terms. And this raises a very interesting question, for me at least interesting, as to how we understand the sacred. And there are two dominant ideas concerning the sacred. Um, one of them is associated with Emil Durkheim, uh, for whom the sacred is something that is set apart from the world and kind of forbidden in the sense of being protected from the world. And so you have sacred spaces, sacred lands, sacred country, uh, etc. Uh, and then you have uh, the idea of the sacred associated with another French thinker by the name of Georges Bataille. And Bataille, uh, he treats the sacred as something that erupts into the world, something that kind of marks its presence in the world. It might be in the form of, you know, an extraordinary geographical feature in the world. And so the sacredness 
is not that it's been set apart, but that it's really stamped itself in the world as a centre of the world. And so you'll find, for example, sacred rivers. Uh, and then you'll find sacred parts of sacred rivers. Uh, sacred parts where, for example, they appear to flow um, in the opposite direction to their normal flow. In the case of the river uh, Ganges, in the, at the holy place of Benares, for example, where the river takes a turn and it appears to be flowing opposite to its normal direction uh, from north to south. And so you have this sense of the erupting sacred. There is a third sense of the sacred which is associated with the numinous as that which gives order to the observable world. It's the sense of the overarching order of the world. So that the sacred is not set apart and forbidden. It's not the erupting into the world. The sacred is the very thing that gives the world sense. It joins the dots would be the idea of the sacred. And this is associated mostly with the concept of the numinous uh, and mostly associated with the thinker Rudolf Otto, the theologian, a very interesting theologian. But the critical thing about the sacred in these terms, whether it's set apart and forbidden, whether it's erupting into the world, or whether it's giving an overarching sense or purpose to the world, is the question of how the sacred is to be represented, how it's able to appear. And like the unconscious in modern Western secular thought, the, uh, the sacred only works through its symbols. It is in itself not a thing, but it becomes a thing through the objects by which it, it, it is seen or recognised. In that sense, we could also argue that the unconscious is a concept, a 20th century concept that is in so many ways the 20th century sacred, the, uh, the unconscious of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic mythologies is very much, you know, the sacred of our times. Um, you know, so sacred that we didn't even think it was sacred because we stopped believing <laughs> in religion and we became psychoanalysts instead. In other words, it was the new religion. So this raises a very interesting question about the nature of the symbolic and how the symbolic is able to um, transmute now, my problem is going to be I cannot get the next slide. Can people still hear me? Yes, you can. Thanks very much. But the problem is I can't queue up the next slide um, uh, in the in the in the lecture because of this um, glorious problem with. Um, would you like the title of the slide? Would that help? Oh, no. I mean, I can look at the slides by looking at my PowerPoint, but what I can't do is I can't broadcast the slide to you oh. and change to the and change. So you're all staring we, at the moment, we, I think, at ritual and reality. We can open now, um, open the slides in another window and look at them if as you're you talking. If you can, that would be true. Is that possible to the 15 of you? I have mine printed out, so I'll be fine. I've got mine, You're I'm fine. fine. Actually, I already opened yeah. that PowerPoint. You've already opened. Is everyone else, um, is it clear as mud what we're, hang on, let me try. No, Manishia, can you see it? Yes, your hand's up. So that's saying yes, I hope. Great, thank you. Okay, well, I'll persevere. My apologies for these um, technical pictures uh, with this. Um, so what I'm going to suggest then about the sacred and the nature of sacred representation is that it is virtual. Now, when I call it virtual, 
I don't mean that it's almost real. I mean that it's a real that is open to multiple possibilities and extensions of itself in all manner of directions. And so it's more than real. And that the virtual then, and here I'm quoting Bruce Kapfera, um, is that the ritual, in ritual virtuality is simultaneously its own reality, which is to say it's not reducible to any other reality that is independent of the one it represents to itself, e.g. Main Street USA, and an opening up within ongoing existential realities. Okay, you can read that and read that again and think, what the is he saying? Then stop and think. Okay, there I am. I'm at Main Street, USA. Am I really in Main Street, USA, or am I in Disneyland? So I'm simultaneously in Main Street, USA, but at the same time, then this human in a mouse costume walks up to me with a gigantic mouse head and offers to pose for a photograph with me. And so suddenly I meet a giant mouse in the middle of Main Street, USA. Now, it might be that some of you might think that you need to kill this mouse, that it's vermin. Well, you'll get into deep trouble um, if you try to do anything else. Okay, let's not go there. The point, though, is that it is its own reality and all sorts of possibilities now open themselves up. And so you're not just in an amusement park. You're not just in a representation of Main Street USA. You are caught up in that virtual world, which is Disneyland. And Disneyland has created its own world. And in that world, you create the potential for new kinds of experience, new kinds of thinking about the nature of the world in which you live. And that you do this by entering into the virtuality of these sorts of spaces. Now, you can stop and think, he's just talking about a bloody amusement park, but every now and then he mentions a temple or a church or a mosque. And my point is they are all able to do this. You are able to work into these spaces and open up new possibilities of being through the very order of those spaces. That's what we mean by their virtuality. And this virtuality is the possibility of ritual. We go back and we go right back to the Steve Friedson paper on the Hervé drumming and the experience of spirit possession. And now we begin to recognise that in, in these terms, it's in the virtuality of that cross-rhythm drumming in the virtuality, that virtual space that the cross-rhythm drumming generates, that it becomes possible for the shaping of new experience in the form here of spirit possession. Now, you're not necessarily, you might go to Disneyland and suddenly find that you've been possessed by the spirit of a giant mouse called Mickey, highly unlikely, but it, these are of very different orders, obviously, but nevertheless, they play upon that capacity of the ritual space to create possibility. And if, if it's about creating possibility, then the simple idea of representation doesn't really cut the mustard. Because in a representational world, you're just looking at an image of something else. But this is not simply a representation. 
it's something that plays upon representation but it has the capacity to create a new possibility not for everyone not everybody gets possessed not everyone has the same experience of Disneyland most people don't in fact but many can and many do and this is what ritual plays upon that's what we're suggesting and sacrifice how does sacrifice fit into this sacrifice is the right that is normally associated with the offering of something to another being usually a higher order being when it, we're talking about blood sacrifice we're talking about the offering of the life and the flesh of that being when we're talking about sacrifice and the scapegoat we're talking about a very particular kind of uh, style of sacrifice where um, and this is drawn from the Old Testament book Leviticus where you have a description of how in the sacrifice uh, a goat would be offered as the sacrificial victim but in order to determine uh, which goat would be the sacrificial victim two goats would be brought to the arena and by lottery one of those goats would be determined to be the sacrificial victim and that goat would be killed um, and then um, butchered and cooked and offered to the to the to god and also consumed then by the people who were participating in the event the second goat would be cast out of the village and cast out into the desert into the realm of Azazul as it was called and the idea was that this was the wilderness and that that goat would take with it the impurities of uh, the community impurities that could be associated for example in the act of killing the first goat that second goat that was cast out is what we call the scapegoat the goat that escapes the goat that is put out the goat that goes back into the wild now we can think that this scapegoat is headed off carrying the pollution of the community symbolic pollution of the community on its back and goes out to the desert where there's no food and no water and it's going to basically die perhaps but it will not have been killed it has been sent into the wilderness the scapegoat then is never a sacrificial victim and in that sense it's never a victim of the ritual rather than a product of the ritual it may live and thrive uh, highly unlikely but it may the critical thing is it's never killed this scapegoat then is the counterpart to the sacrifice the sacrifice is in the center where the scapegoat is on the outside just keep that you know it's, it's worth remembering because scapegoat cultures are very common and oftentimes in certain sacrificial systems they will always take a portion of the sacrifice so instead of having two goats you'll have one goat but part of that one goat will always be thrown away or if you're sacrificing a cucumber as a representation of the goat that cucumber will be cut in half and half of the cucumber is thrown away and so you'll see that you, you can call it the scape cucumber if you like now the interesting thing about sacrifice is that sacrifice is a ritual practice where you find always the use of surrogates and substitutes so you'll use a goat rather than a cow you'll use a cucumber rather than a goat rather than a cow if you're poor you might use a cucumber saying to the god i promise when i get a bit wealthier i'll sacrifice a, 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 a bull 
for you an ox. But right now, I'm sorry, I'm just going to sacrifice a cucumber. So you have the idea of the substitute. Now, this idea of the substitute, you can think back and say, yeah, that's like the Last Supper. Um, didn't the Last Supper use a substitute bread for the sheep in the Passover? Yes, it did. And doesn't that have, those of you who have Christian backgrounds will say, oh, and doesn't that have certain parallels to an episode in the Old Testament called the Akedah? where uh, God asked um, Abraham to offer his own son as a sacrificial victim and, Abra and it was be he, was being test he was testing him and Abraham was at the point of killing his own son as a sacrificial offering to the God and the God at that point appeared, intervened, stopped the sacrifice and said, I've seen enough. You've shown me your faith. Uh, what we will do is we will sacrifice here. I have a sheep. We will sacrifice that sheep instead of your son. So it's the substitute. Uh, it's the idea of the substitute uh, again as the victim. Are people still with me? Yes, Thank yes, you, Patrick. Yeah, great. And my phone's going. I'm thinking, oh, is one of you calling me saying, we can't hear a bloody thing. Um, and, um, uh, and so we recognise that in sacrificial practice, it is very common to use substitutes. It might be a coconut. It might be bananas. It might be a cucumber. It might be a pumpkin. Um, or it might be a sheep. Uh, or it might be a goat, or it might be an ox. And some people say these are all substitutes ultimately for a human being, that sacrifice is ultimately always about sacrificing a human being. That may not be true. But the one thing that we do know is that sacrifice is a practice that is full of representations. Bread for the body, cucumber for goat, etc., etc. But we have to ask ourselves, oh, are these representing something else? Uh, or is it that they have within them a certain kind of uh, potential to be not only a representation for something else, but also able to pick up on and give particular expression to a certain meaning in that something else? So, for example, when the Nua sacrifice a cucumber for a goat, they slice the cucumber lengthwise in two. And what you can see in the sacrifice of the substitute, therefore, is much more clearly that sense of the two halves of the, of the offering the sacrifice of part and the scapegoat part. So the representation is not just a representation. In a way, it's more real than the real because it gets at the heart of what the sacrificial action is doing. And interestingly, the anthropologist Philippe Descola, uh, who is a student of uh, Levi-Strauss, by the way, uh, in his book, Beyond Nature and Culture, he picks up that in those societies which are very strongly into creating analogies, um, and so you have a whole series of symbolic reference, analogical systems, uh, the naming, associating people with plants, and so on and so on, and it's in those systems, analogical systems or analog systems, that you find sacrifice is very, very, very common. Uh, but I'm not, I won't go into that, and I've kind of my powerpoints have killed my point. Um, and there is another point that I'm wanting to make in there, which I'm not going to make. I'm sorry, this is now getting me annoyed um, with this lecture, so I apologise. 
Now, taking all of those points into consideration about the use of substitutes um, and the creation of symbolic universes whereby you, you build on your analogical system so that a cucumber becomes a goat, becomes an ox, etc., etc., we can recognise that in the practice of sacrifice and its symbolisms, we have the capacity to begin to conceptualise the world in bold and brand new ways. And that these bold and brand new ways uh, are associated with the virtuality, which is in sacrifice. The fact that you're doing something like cutting a cucumber, and you stop and think about that for a second and think, why on earth is somebody cutting up a cucumber and getting so excited about it? It's just cutting up a cucumber, surely. But the point is, it's not just cutting up a cucumber. It's also cutting up a human. It's symbolically cutting up a human, but at the same time, it isn't cutting up a human. And so it then enables us to recognise the relation that people can draw between the cucumber and the human, the sacred relation that people can draw between the cucumber and the human, the virtual relation that people can draw between the cucumber and the human. That's all very fine. But let's also not forget that sacrifice is also to be grasped always as an act of violence. It is an extraordinarily violent act where at its extreme, in blood, violent, in blood sacrifice, you see the killing of an animal. Or, in the case of uh, the Passion of the Christ, this image is drawn from the film by Mel Gibson, Mel, Mel Gibson directed the film, in these, we see the taking of the human life. But in that, in that story, the mythology of that story is the taking of a divine life, where indeed the sacrificial victim is no longer a substitute, but the very God itself. And so we have instances where you find the practice of animal sacrifice. And you can see there uh, the picture on the right is of, an, of, is of an ox that is about to be sacrificed. It's about to, 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 to lose its life. Um, and the person with the hand above it is holding a meat cleaver. You can see that cleaver. And my apologies, but this is the, the nature of the act. This is what humans do when they do animal sacrifice. And there's no running away from the horror but this is something that human beings do. And, um, and all I can say is that when you work on ritual traditions as I do, uh, which are sacrificing ritual traditions, animal sacrificing traditions, as I do with the Hindu temples, and in particular for the goddess Kali, uh, where you see the routine sacrifice of animals, um, yeah, it, it, it's confronting. It is highly confronting and it raises all manner of interesting questions about the nature of human violence, uh, the nature of human aggression. What What is it that people are doing? Are they satisfying some kind of bloodlust? Uh, is it sport? You only need to watch television fishing programs, particularly when they just throw the fish back after they've been torturing it for half an hour. And then, then they try and suffocate it for a while and then they pose for photographs with this poor suffocating fish and then they throw it back into the water. And I think, gee, that's clever. Um, now let's talk about animal sacrifice, shall we? Um, now, the point that I'm making, though, is that the, the violence is undeniable. The violence of sacrificial practice is absolutely undeniable. The violence of ritual is undeniable. The extent, the frequency with which rituals are violent, whether we are talking about initiation rites or we're talking about animal sacrifice rites, 
we are talking about acts of violence, acts of disaggregating violence, where things are broken up into their component pieces and offered to gods or cooked and offered to gods. Now the question then becomes, are we able to explain sacrifice in an attempt to try to explain its violence? And if we're trying to explain the violence of sacrifice, where are we going to go? What are the, what are the grounds upon which we try to explain violence? Because if we can explain the violence of sacrifice, perhaps we can explain the violence of human beings as if somehow human violence is something that you can explain. Now this becomes a big issue in the work uh, of uh, a French literary theorist and philosopher by the name of René Girard in a very famous book published in the early 1970s called Violence and the Sacred. And he regarded the violence of sacrifice as a displacement mechanism, as a mechanism that displaced the innate violence that we have towards one another will be displaced by our engaging in an act of violence on something else. And so the surrogate uh, victim is the victim that carries away our fundamental aggression towards one another um, and takes it away rather like the scapegoat takes away the violence and pollution of sacrifice off into the desert. And so when we commit these acts, what we're doing is we're expelling from our bodies our innate competitive being, our rivalrous being towards one another, our desire to be violent towards one another, and we displace this. And it's displaced then through these acts that we perform collectively on others. Now, in a nutshell, that's the Girard thesis in his book, Violence and the Sacred. And it was very, very captivating for many decades, for many people who were happy with a psychologistic explanation. I, for one, have never been happy with it because to me it's another kind of functionalism that somehow uh, I engage in some practice in order to displace some psychological condition which I have prior to the sacrifice. So my desire to be violent, my human nature somehow pre-exists my sacrifice and then my sacrifice helps me deal with it. It kind of displaces it, it represses it, redirects it or something like that. But I don't know if that's true. I don't know what came first. And so the question of the violent and the sacred remains for me a fundamental problem. But I think this is where Girard is actually more interesting. His point is that Violence is a fundamental problem for human beings. They don't like it. They do it, but they don't like it. And in the act of sacrifice, they're able to, in fact, explore it. They're able to think about it and think about the nature of their world. But I want to take a slightly different approach. And I want to say, look, that might well be so, Girard. But sacrifice is also about taking things apart. It's about breaking things down, breaking things down into their, cons their constituent pieces and putting them back together again. Whether I'm talking about cutting a cucumber in two or cutting up a goat and cooking it or whether I'm talking about tearing the petals off flowers and throwing them towards a statue. I would in a Hindu temple uh, ritual. I am disaggregating the world and re-aggregating the world relative to the sacred. And that this practice reminds me very much of what Levi Strauss called bricolage. 
the idea that you take things apart and you put them back together in new ways. And that in mythical thought, you had what Levi-Strauss said was intellectual bricolage. bricolage. Take the head off a lion, stick it on a human. Or stick the head of a human and stick it on a lion and so on and so forth. You are taking things apart and you are putting them back together in an imaginative framework. In sacrifice, you are also taking things apart and putting them back together. And in the process, you connect the cucumber and the goat and the ox and the flower and so on. And you build your analogies and you build your classifications of the world. And that sacrifice then is indeed the act of deconstruction and reconstruction of the world. And that the violence is indeed the violence that takes things apart. But it's not necessarily reducible to human aggression and human nature. It's the violence that turns the branch of a tree into a club. It's the violence that turns the bone of an animal into a hammer or something else. It's that ability to create categories from existing categories. And that sacrifice is at the heart of that practice. It's the heart of bricolage. Now, because I'm so now totally discombobulated with my lecture, I'm just going to go to the last part and finish. And with that, then, let's turn to consider the red and the black. Because in the red and the black, we have a ritual that was invented by an anthropologist in order to make a ritual. He took certain objects and he put them together. Each and every one of those objects was completely meaningless. What's red? What's black? And then he added certain elements to the ritual process, such as separating the participants into two groups and making one group into the agents of change of the other group. Again, a completely arbitrary choice, in this instance based on gender. But as he did that, the gender element was not important. It was purely arbitrary. It was arbitrary as making one thing red and the other thing black. He, in creating then the space of ritual in which there are no meanings, it means nothing. You stop and you say, ah, so what has ritual got to do with religion? It's, it's, there's no Passover being reenacted here. There's no do this in memory of me. There's no identity between a cucumber and a goat and a goat and an ox. There's nothing. There's just a series of collected, put together things. And in, but even so, it has the logic of sacrifice in that it separates and disaggregates. It puts people in relation to that separated and deaggregated and aggregated world and then it puts them back together in a new way and the staggering thing is that it has a psychological effect and that's the interesting thing it's completely meaningless but it changes people and that's why it's such an interesting reading to read and let's talk about that in the seminars once again i apologize for the fucked up nature of this lecture and then the recording and my also my bad language um, and thank you very much for the people who hung in there and and went through it those of you who are just listening to this recording i'm sorry you'll have to i'm afraid you'll have to look at the powerpoint slides which have been loaded up there as well okay um bye bye everybody <laughs>